Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And why don't we kick off, Caroline, with some news out of the European Union. Oh, please. News alert. (laughs) Do you need an accent? News alert. (laughs) Very good. From the European Union. Yeah. It turns out uh, the European Union banned animal testing for cosmetics. Yeah, and it's going into effect on March 11th, 2013. So it's coming right up around the corner as this podcast is being recorded. And it took 23 years of trying, but the European Coalition to End Animal Experiments helped bring about that ban, which is a pretty huge deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this uh, they say that all personal care products, so not just, you know, powder, but shampoo, for instance, all personal care, care products will be subject to the rules, meaning that final products cannot have been tested on animals. This ban was actually approved 10 years ago, a full decade, people, and they initially agreed to begin enforcing it in 2009, but you know how these things are. It Pe- takes a while. Pe- people move slowly, but the European Union is way ahead of the U.S., if we're talking about bans and things. This is true. Um, and the EU is not the only uh, group of nations thinking about this. Uh, Israel, although it is not a group, it is a singular nation, another, <laughs> a singular nation in addition to the European <laughs> Union, uh, is banning the import, marketing, and sale of any cosmetics, toiletries, or detergents whose manufacturing process involves animal testing. But it does make exemptions for items produced for uh, medicinal products, not categorized as drugs. And that new law is in addition to a 2007 law that banned animal testing in Israel's cosmetics industry. But Mark Bittman, who we've referenced a number of times and whom I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with from his food writing at the New York Times, wrote in an op-ed column in uh, February of 2013, hey, uh, don't celebrate yet. Yeah, he says that there are plenty, don't worry people, there are plenty of questionable ingredients still in your products. And not only that, animal testing is far from over. And so not only are we, are we not, we're not quite there yet, especially in the U.S. from banning all animal testing or at least, you know, reducing it. China, they came around and officially mandated that animal testing happen with cosmetics mm-hmm. like y- you have to you can't sell cosmetics in china if they haven't been tested on animals but that puts them in a sticky situation because then where are they going to sell them outside of china you put that lipstick on a rabbit and china is such a good example of how this animal testing issue is such a complex one not just from the you know the starting point of public perception and the whole morality debate surrounding animal testing but even to how how do you stop it when it is so common and it's so widespread and some would argue that it has positive benefits as well um but before we go any further though caroline some people might be wondering huh, why are Chris and Caroline talking about animal testing on stuff mom never told you? Gender aspect, all women love bunnies. Is that it? Well, I don't have any empirical data to back that up, although I will say that 100% of the women in this room right now, <laughs> I think, really enjoy bunnies. Annie, our producer. 
She nods. Yeah. We, we got we got a three for three for bunnies. No, um, it's true. There has been, um, first of all, a long established gender difference in perceptions toward animal testing. And what I mean by that is that survey after survey after survey has shown that women more often than men oppose animal testing, usually on grounds that we don't want to inflict unnecessary harm on animals, more taking more of the, the moral approach to it. Um, for instance, there was a 1996 study published in the journal Ethics and Behavior, which found that female college students were more likely to support animal testing restrictions and express concern over the suffering aspect, mm-hmm. whereas men were more likely to argue on behalf of the potential scientific insight glean basically saying like well you know if you got to kill a few mice to get a drug that can help a lot of people then okay then that's fine yeah well there was a 2003 gallup poll among americans britons and canadians and overall the majority of americans and canadians thought that animal testing was more morally acceptable than Britons uh, did. However, women in all countries uh, who found that animal testing was morally wrong far outnumbered the proportion of men who did so. Yeah, so it's not just a thing of American women clutching their, <laughs> their bunnies and their, oh. their mice. Um, and it's interesting, and, and we don't have time to go into it in this episode, and we should do another episode on this, but women have always been very active with animal rights in general, and this is something that people often trace back to the progressive era's anti-vivisection movement in which it was middle class women leading the charge in what would be the predecessor to today's animal rights movement that we think about. And it's, yeah, it's that whole idea of the progressive era's moral accountability uh, that the women at the time talked about. And they also had a large presence in the anti-cruelty groups of the time um, and groups like the AAVS, so the American Anti-Vivisection Society. Mm -hmm. And if you want to learn more about this, uh, Emily Gardner has written a whole book on this called Women and the Animal rights movement, and I was looking at one section from the book in which she was talking to 27 female animal rights activists, uh, uh, trying to figure out why it is that so many women are involved in the first place and why more men aren't involved, and she talked about how their presence in animal rights was largely explained from just basic biological influences, social learning and empathy based on common oppressions, and that whole common oppressions thing is something that comes up as well, where you can find so many papers on connections drawn between animal rights, support, and feminism. Basically saying, like, you know, we can empathize with, you know, oppression, I suppose, Mm -hmm. in a way. Yeah, and she said, uh, you know, are the cages that confine humans and young girls any different than the cages that confine animals. And I can understand how some people might think that that is a bit of a philosophical stretch, but I think it would be worth us coming back to at some point, really digging into that history of of why women have been so invested in animal rights. But we thought, because it is such a gendered issue, not just on uh, the human side of whether or not you support it or oppose it, but there's also gendered issues among test animals, 
that we could come back and talk about as well. Uh, the fact that a lot of those mice, for instance, that we think of in science labs tend to be male. And uh, wh- whether that's really such a good model if you're looking for, say, a medication for female chronic pain, things like that. So gender is very much tied up with animal testing. Yeah, now going back to a more general history of animal testing, it has really been crucial as far as testing everything from medicines to, yeah, even your shampoo. And there's a good example of diabetic dogs proving the existence of insulin in the 1920s. I'm imagining dogs in lab coats. I am too, with little beakers. Yes. And one uh, critical turning point was in 1933 when at least 17 American women were blinded by and one died of complications from the use of new mascara lash lure. At the time, no laws governed the safety of consumer products. So everybody's like, oh, my God, mascara is killing our women. Yeah, there was this untested chemical in it, uh, phenolemidiamine, that caused blisters, abscesses, and ulcers around women's eyelashes and faces. It even, did you mention that it even blinded one woman? And one woman got an infection so bad that she ended up dying from it. Yeah. Um, if you want to see some, uh, not, not th- so fun <laughs> pictures on the internet. You can Google lash lure. Um, but because of that, Congress passed the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938, requiring that products be verified safe for human use before they could be sold. Yeah, so this is where we get the entrance of widespread animal testing based on the premise that animals are similar enough to people. And I guess, I mean, call me ignorant. I'd really never thought of uh, thought of it that way as people being like, oh, well, now we should start testing on bunnies and and mice. Like, I I never thought of it coming about that way, really. I guess I thought of it as more of like a a lab and medicine kind of thing that came later. Right. I mean, at the time, I guess it was a a safety need that they thought that they were easily fulfilling. Um, and if we fast forward to today, if we think about, well, how many how many animals are involved in all this testing? In 2007, the New York Times uh, reported that by conservative estimates, tens of millions of animals are killed or maimed each year in research on safety and effectiveness of new drugs, agricultural chemicals, and consumer products. That would include Cosmetics, And I, I should mention, too, that we have had some listeners write in asking us to do an uh, a episode specifically on animal testing on in cosmetics. But it's such a huge thing that they're like finding that granular of information is surprisingly challenging. Yeah. Although there is plenty of information on lash lure. Which is horrifying. One thing I think is interesting, though, is just the lack of specific and concrete numbers. The Humane Society in 2009 estimated, similarly to that New York Times estimate, that more than 25 million vertebrate animals are used each year in research, testing, and education. But they say accurate and comprehensive figures for the U.S. aren't available. And they point out that the most common animal used, which are rats and mice bred for research, aren't actually counted in that ginormous number of lab animals, nor are they covered under the Animal Welfare Act. Yeah, and so if you want, to, if you're curious about the types of animals used in research, obviously the number one is going to be mice, then rats, birds, rabbits, guinea pigs, hamsters, farm animals, dogs, primates. 
and cats. I can't even imagine how they get a cat to sit still. I mean, you know, that's an insensitive comment, but <laughs> that's why they live in cages. Kitty cats are like, no, get off of me. <laughs> But the FDA's stance on animal testing and product safety is a little bit flimsy because the FDA says, hey, cosmetic firms, uh, guess what? We want you to substantiate the safety of your products. We don't want a lash lure incident happening again, but we're not going to necessarily require you to do anything. And we're going to tell you that we don't really like animal testing, but really we just want to make sure that people don't get hurt because of your products. Yeah, the FDA has advised manufacturers to use whatever testing is appropriate for backing up the safety of their products, but they haven't specifically said one way or the other, don't use animals or you have to use animals. They do support applicable laws that are in place. And one of those that we mentioned just a second ago is the Animal Welfare Act, which was signed into law in 1966. It's the only federal law that regulates the treatment of animals in research, exhibition, or transport by dealers. And the act requires that minimum standards of care and treatment be provided for certain animals bred for these uses. And I can imagine that the people listening who are more active with animal rights would say, yeah, yeah, minimum standards of care and treatment. I mean, that's it's it is pretty baseline when you read about like what minimum care entails, which is, you know, it's obviously like small confined spaces and lots of food. Mice can just gorge themselves usually. But Um, no exercise, no no sunlight, no bridge games, no mahjong, no Sunday brunches with the fam. No. And then in 2002, the National Institutes of Health also got involved with overseeing the care and use of laboratory animals with their office of laboratory and animal welfare that's responsible for essentially administering policies to make sure that animals involved in government-funded research are treated well. And then on top of that, getting back to the whole cosmetics thing, there is the Safe Cosmetics Act that was introduced in June 2011, which is kind of just like a like an encouragement thing. Like, hey, do the right thing, companies. Yeah. And I don't think it's been adopted yet. No. I think it's still floating out there like... Use safe powder. Yeah, it's it's almost like the FDA and the government. And I understand, like this, when you're dealing with so many manufacturers manufacturing so many products, I I'm sure that it is challenging. But the fact is, it seems like the government takes merely a goodwill approach. With like, we like. We give a thumbs up to safe things, safe for all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think the argument's definitely out there that, hey, do you care more about your eyeballs not melting off or or the bunny's eyeballs not melting off? Right. And that that is a question for some people. That is a question for some people. And there are also researchers who are busy looking for alternatives because it's not like scientists are like, Mwahaha, I get to go to work and, and kill mice today. <laughs> or maybe some are. <laughs> I hope not. There are alternatives being developed out there. Uh, the John Hopkins Center for Alternatives to Animal Testing developed AltWeb, which is a clearinghouse for information about methods, research, and resources for alternative methods. So what are the th- some of the things out there that helps? There's Grass ingredients, G-R-A-S, which is generally recognized as safe. These are ingredients that don't require further testing. Uh, they're also test tube and, and computer technology. So it's sort of a loophole. Like mm-hmm. they were possibly tested a long time ago, but now we recognize that they're okay. So we don't have to test them anymore. 
Yeah, that would be like an argument for companies that offer 100% organic, all natural mm-hmm. cosmetics and beauty products. We don't have to worry so much about the safety because we know that these things are natural and okay for us. Unless, of course, we have an allergic reaction. Yeah, that stinks. And there are other efforts underway to look into in vitro methods using human cells, cell line, or cellular components to test on that smaller cellular basis rather than having to test an entire living organism like a mouse or a rat or a bird. Um, and then looking at genic- genetically engineered rodents for labs, although that's, that seems like a, just a different iteration of the same thing. Yeah. Well, the whole using human cells and human tissue makes sense to me because, I mean, that's actual people data, not mice data that we somehow have to extrapolate and try to infer things from. Because a lot of times, and I mean, we'll get into this in a second, but a lot of times the information you get from a rat or a chimpanzee or a rabbit has nothing to do with how an actual human being would react to a product. Right. I mean, and obviously, you know, the closest you could get would be through testing on primates. But, oh, my goodness, if we have, you know, if there's a moral debate around whether or not to test on mice, you can imagine the testing on chimpanzees. That's out of the question. Um but, yeah, Caroline, it's such a good point about the fact that the number one test subject, mice, actually do make for terrible human comparisons in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, this is uh, coming from a Slate article uh, on February 13th of this year. Uh A study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that among 150 potential treatments for severe inflammation that were tested on mice and that actually ended up helping the mice, none of them had a positive result in human trials. Now, they focused on inflammation just because that's what the researchers themselves were focused on. And it was interesting to read about how what a difficult time they had getting this study published just because everybody's like, whoa, 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 whoa. All of our studies come from people who <laughs> who practice on mice, so we don't want to have like negative news out there. But yeah, they found that there were not many similarities between mouse and human data at all, including, you know, the genes involved in each species inflammation, the molecules or kinds of signaling that goes on inside cells, and the correlation between mice and people, they said, was close to zero. Now, in 2008, there was another paper that was also published in PNAS, PNAS, that identified 120 genes that are vital to human survival. Now, of those, Caroline, just 93 turned out to also be essential in mice. You might say, oh, 120 versus 93. No, that's still a pretty significant That's, that's a gap. jump. That's a jump. And the conclusion they came to, they said, it is possible that mouse models of a large number of human diseases will not yield sufficiently accurate information, although they might provide some basic knowledge. So the uncomfortable conclusion that this reaches is that maybe we need to find a better model for humans, which is why things like testing those human cells or cell lines could be a better alternative. But also there's the whole issue raised of like, well, okay, well, let's keep using mice if you want to use mice, but let's look at what makes them so great at fighting certain conditions or why didn't they suffer the inflammation that we did under the certain condition? Because it's interesting, like uh, all the all the different types of humans that were tested, they all responded the same, but all of the different types of mice did not. I mean, I'm, I'm painting that with a broad brush and, mm-hmm. and very vague language, but all of that to say like, okay, well, why weren't the mice responding in the way right. that people did? So look at that as a solution, maybe instead of trying to make 
as that slate writer said, you know, make mice just a terrible model for humans. Right. And because it, it, it seems like the research has been definitely lacking over the past 30 years because there are only a dozen or so scholars who have even explored the question of how often animal tests predict side effects in humans. Because the thing is, too, if you think about it, with a lot of these tests that are going on, if it hurts the animal, of course, it's going to get shelved Mm -hmm. when the problems might actually be irrelevant in humans. But then there are cases when it doesn't cause problems in animals, but hurts or even kills people sometimes. Yeah. And an example of that is that uh, there was a test in March 2006 where London clinicians injected six volunteers with tiny doses of an experimental treatment for rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis. It had been given to mice, rats, rabbits and monkeys, all with no ill effects. But within minutes of being injected, the human subjects were on the floor writhing in pain. They all had to be hospitalized. Some people's organ systems were shutting down. People had all sorts of terrible things happening to them. So really, it's kind of, it almost seems like a crapshoot. Well, and and this is not to say that, you know, animal testing has been totally pointless. Obviously, it's paved the way for things like polio and hepatitis B vaccines, uh, medical procedures like measuring blood pressure, uh, pacemakers, heart and lung machines, surgery techniques like those to correct and prevent bone diseases. Um, but at the same time, it seems like where we are now in 2013, we are a long way away from lash lure mm-hmm. days. And I, I'm going to be curious to hear from people who are listening who are in, you know, maybe lab technicians or in science doing this kind of research where animal testing comes up a lot and wondering whether or not these kind of conversations are happening and what, whether it is time to move beyond the mouse model. I mean, I know in a lot of ways this com- conversation might seem like uh, an oversimplification, but... We take so much of what we get from all of this for granted. I think it's worth looking at the actual process of of what is going into to keeping our products safe. Sure. I mean, are, and are they really that safe? Because we haven't even touched on, and I'm sure people write in about, you know, the the basic, you know, kind of nasty chemicals that people yeah. keep finding out about that are in pretty much everything surrounding us. Well, I mean, there's the whole issue of cruelty free. Like, will will do anything if I buy cruelty-free products. And those are a lot of the products that say, okay, they were not tested on animals. We have the the Leaping Bunny logo to signify that, you know, none of this was tested on animals. But then there's a whole bunch of literature out there that talks about how, well, okay, maybe the final product wasn't tested on an animal, but that doesn't mean all the ingredients weren't. Yeah. Or weren't at some point tested on animals. It reminds me so much of the difficulty that has come up with the organic label mm-hmm. for food of people being able to say, oh, this is organic. Wink, wink. Right. And then still having some kinds of, uh, of pesticides. It's not necessarily all natural, but mm-hmm. you can still say organic. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it gets messy. It does get messy. I, I can honestly, I'll admit it. Uh, I, that is not something that I consider when I buy products. Right. Uh, as to whether it's tested on animals. But I know, yeah, but I know that it's something that uh, a lot of listeners are concerned about. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I do want to go back again and, and do something more looking into why women do tend to be more devoted to or concerned about animal testing compared to, to men out there 
and whether, I don't know, I wonder if along the same lines as thinking about organics for food, um, whether or not moms might be more invested in, in non-animal tested products mm-hmm. as well. So what I'm saying is, listeners, we want to hear from you about this. Uh, we wanted to do this because of the, the EU ban that's about to go in place. And it'll be interesting to see if there's any kind of ripple effect in the United States. So send us your letters on this. Momstuffatdiscovery.com is where you can send them. Well, I've got one here from Joe in response to our episode for Valentine's Day on whether PDA is okay. And she had an instance when PDA was totally not okay because she got a social kiss at work. She says, over the past few months, I've had four or five meetings with a guy wanting my company to invest in his product. We got on well, seemed to connect at an innovation level, and things were looking strong. That is, until the last meeting. As I was walking him out of my office, I extended my hand for a handshake and got pulled in for a really awful kiss on the cheek. The whole thing was icky and uncomfortable and made me question if we connected because of a shared love for innovation or if he had additional thoughts. After discussing at length with my colleagues, we've declared his behavior creepy and unprofessional. As a woman in a male-dominated industry, I work hard to make gender a non-issue, but this would-be supplier probably would have never social kissed one of my male colleagues. And I agree with that, Joe. Hmm. A lot of just put up your hand really fast <laughs> so that it awkwardly kisses the palm of your hand. There you go. And I hope your palm Assert is sweaty. dominance <laughs> that way. Face smush. Okay, here's uh, here's one from Erin. She said she just finished uh, our prolapsed uterus episode, Kristen. One and, of my faves. Yeah, and obviously a listener fave too, for sure. Um, didn't give anyone nightmares. But she says, I was frantically doing Kegel exercises pretty much throughout the episode. While there is not really a wrong way to do Kegels, I found myself with poor timing control. And in this world of unroll the toilet paper apps, I thought that there must be an app for Kegel exercises. And of course, there was a plethora to choose from. I ended up downloading the free Kegel Cat out of sheer curiosity. It is fantastic. You can set up how many reps, the duration of each rep, and the rest period duration. I hope you're wearing sweatbands, Aaron. Sounds difficult. A very anime-esque cat with a sweatband times your routine with differently pitched mews. It is a tad bit ridiculous, but keeps me on track, more or less, because it is ridiculous. It also features an endless kegel mode, as well as a dance mode that you'll just have to check out for yourselves. She says, I have no words that would give its frenetic absurdity justice. So thank you, Aaron. Kegels, there's an app for that. <laughs> so thanks to everyone who has written into momstuffatdiscovery.com, which of course is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook. Leave us a message there and like us while you're at it. Follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and follow us on Tumblr as well at stuffmomnevertoldyou.tumblr.com. And if you want to learn more about the science of animals and animal testing and all of those products that we get out of those laboratories, well, you can probably guess where to go. It's HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 